Hello there, and welcome to Not The Farmer's Wife podcast. I'm CJ Steedman, and I'm definitely not the farmer's wife. I am a mum, a partner, a full-time off-farm worker, and enthusiastically a lady farmer. On our farm, Mojo Homestead, we grow chickens, goats, cows, and bees. We practice regenerative agriculture and holistic management. If, like me, you love all things farming and homesteading, and if you'd like to learn from the female farmer's perspective, then I'd love to have you along for the ride. So let's get farming. G'day everyone and welcome to another episode of Not The Farmer's Wife. I'm CG and I completely forgot that last week was episode number 52. Now, we did miss one week, but that means we've been podcasting now for a whole year, which freaks me out a little bit because I didn't know how I'd go when I first started. Um, It's kind of weird for anybody that hasn't podcasted or recorded stuff for social media before. You're basically talking to nobody. And I I have a picture in my head of who I'm talking to, but that's just a picture in my head. It's not like you're actually addressing an audience. So podcasting is a little bit weird in that respect. Um, I think some people like it. I um, have to picture you guys. I have to picture you talking to you. Um, and you know, have that image in my head. Otherwise it's very hard for me to kind of have a conversation in my normal kind of conversational tone. (laughs) Otherwise I feel like I'm just recording stuff for social media, which always feels a little bit, there's a little bit of, um, less than authentic, um, self involved in that. And I try and be as authentic as possible with my podcast. So I do have an image, but for those of you that have been with me since the beginning, thank you so much. I do appreciate it. For those that have come in partway through, um, I hope I can give you a whole other year of very valuable and good topics to cover, you know, things that you are going to just walk away going, wow, I didn't even think about that. Uh, But yeah, we're past that one year mark, which is pretty exciting. Um, So what are we talking about today? Well, I had a whole bunch of stuff mapped out and I keep doing this to myself. I map things out and then I go, oh no, I want to talk about this. And this one is kind of relevant for me at the moment and I'll explain why in a sec. But sometimes when I'm mapping out what I'm going to talk about on the podcast, it's, it's things that aren't necessarily happening for me at that particular point in time. And I have, I do have a lot of um, listeners who are in the US and in Europe. Uh, hello to you guys. Uh, and so things that I talk about that are relevant to Australian farming and Australian homesteading right now will not be relevant to you because we're completely seasonally opposed. So sometimes I'll be talking about stuff and you guys will be going, what the fuck? Like, seriously, like we're in the middle of winter. Why are you struggling with a heat wave? Um, but that's that's the joy of having you know this whole worldwide community of homesteading and farming is that there are things going on in places that are different to what's going on for you in your homestead and your farm so what i want to talk about this week was food security and i'm not necessarily talking about the food security from the prepper point of view and um i think i've most of you would have heard me say previously um i don't necessarily consider myself a prepper but i'm sure some people looking from the outside in would say cj you know cans food and dehydrates food and tries to preserve things to keep for longer and and buys in bulk and you know tries to to buy you know bulk amounts that i can keep uh safe and healthy here so that we're not constantly having to go to the shops um and and growing things so that i don't have to buy them from the shops 
But in the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of talk in Australia about um, the supermarkets and the way that the supermarkets are managing the cost of food on the shelf. Now, for most of us as homesteaders, we're probably trying to provide for our own food security. So what's going on in the supermarkets may or may not impact you, but it's definitely there and it's definitely, uh, you know, for me as a non-news watcher, I can see it happening even without watching the news. I can see people discussing it and talking about it and going, this is not right. Now, for most people, I think heading into that homesteading farm, small farm kind of environment, most of us are trying to get to a point where we don't have to shop as much at the supermarket and that we essentially would be growing most of our own food and even to the point where we're growing you know growing what we can use and then anything that's surplus to our needs we would be looking at selling either at a roadside stall at the front of our farm or you know maybe taking a table at a local farmers markets on a regular basis where you're selling your surplus stock um, essentially so you're providing food to others as well as covering all your food requirements However, I think we really need to look at the supermarket situation. It has a significant influence on the food security um, around the world. And certainly I went and had a look at some documents and the only ones I could find re um, listing the food security in different countries. Australia was doing pretty good a couple of years ago. We were actually the most affordable which to anybody living in Australia at the moment doing their grocery shopping, I'm sure you would agree that it doesn't feel like that right now. But the only one I could find was from 2022. And Australia came in number one as the most affordable. Overall for food security, we came in at number 22. So um, the ones that came in first, and I'm just going to drag my little picture up on my computer so that I get it right. The ones that came in first were Finland, Ireland, Norway, France, the Netherlands, Japan, Sweden and Canada tied for seventh, United Kingdom and Portugal were in the top 10 places. Now, the funny bit about that is if you look at the current news situation at the moment about farmers fighting with governments, I think you will find Finland, might be Finland, it's definitely Norway, Ireland, France, the Netherlands are all currently at odds with their own governments refarming. And I think Canada is too. So and the UK definitely is. So out of the top 10, one, two, three, four, five, six, um, six countries are having issues with their government over the way that they're treating farmers. And it can be down to little things like um, not giving them a break on uh, taxing as far as fuel costs like diesel and petrol costs that it might cost them to run their machinery, um, not giving them a tax break in relation to Um, their water usage and things like that now these are all things that they as a farmer you you have to have and some people would say well that's part of the cost of doing business but we do forget and like I say it all the time I talk about the fact that you know without farmers we really we have no food no clothing and no alcohol most importantly I keep saying it I will keep saying it um, so our farmers are an essential service and, you know, when we're not really giving them credit for what they're doing, but the big farmers, they are providing thousands of people with food. So let's have a look at the supermarkets and see how the supermarkets come into this, because I think for a lot of people, they don't necessarily understand how significant the influence is of supermarkets. 
um, and because they're the primary producers of farm produce, primary purchases of farm produce, sorry, and they can be very, um, I can never say this word, but monopolistic in their practices. So this is what how supermarkets operate for those that don't know. They have a little bit of a cunning strategy in regards to negotiating prices with suppliers. For ex- instance, they'll approach supplier A, so farmer A, and they'll offer to purchase 100 kilograms of cucumbers at a certain price, say $10 a kilo, totaling $1,000. So farmer A says, yeah, no dramas, he goes off and starts, or he or she, because it might be a, a not the farmer's wife type, um, goes off and, and plants you know, enough cucumber plants to produce 100 kilograms of cucumbers. The supermarkets then do a little bit of a sneaky and they approach supplier B or farmer B. And they kind of say to farmer B, look, you know, supplier, farmer A, they've, they've given us a certain price, which is $10 per kilo, but we're wondering whether you could maybe do it at a lower price. Farmer B goes, sure, and they negotiate with them and they come down to $9 a kilo. So that would mean that the supermarket's expenditure is just 900 for the same quantity of cucumbers. Now, some might argue that this is just merely supply and demand at work and that farmers wouldn't agree to sell below their production costs. However, the cycle continues and it's a little bit nasty and a bit sneakier than what you think. The supermarket will then quite often go back to farmer A claiming that they can get cucumbers now for $9 a kilo somewhere else. And they'll then put pressure on farmer A to lower their price to say $8 a kilo. And they'll do this push and pull backwards and forwards between two farmers until the two farmers are squeezed down to the lowest possible price that they can afford to sell their cucumbers for. Um, And in some cases, not a loss, but barely covering their costs, like not covering their wages, just covering their absolute minimum costs. Now, if the farmers have already started the process of growing those cucumbers after after getting into a deal with the supermarkets, um, then then they've still got to sell those 100 kilos of cucumbers. Otherwise, it's a big waste of time and money. Now, before you say, oh, well, surely there's contracts in place. No, the contracts that the supermarkets use are very, very cheekily worded. And quite often, they're just word of mouth. So that means that the farmers feel like they're they're committed to this process, but they've got nothing in writing. Now, they could push the supermarkets to get something in writing, but I would hazard a bet, uh, and I've not had to negotiate with the supermarkets because I don't sell like that, um, but I would hazard a bet that the supermarkets would say, no, we're not signing a contract, or they would have some clause in it saying, if we can find it at an astronomically lower figure somewhere else, well, guess what? You're out of luck. So that kind of pressure constantly on the farmers is what's impacting their livelihoods and, and financially really impacting them where they're possibly only breaking even on their costs and not earning a wage. And that partially means that most farmers have to go off farm to get a job to try and earn some money. But what's really annoying about the whole thing is the supermarkets are now selling these cucumbers across their stores. And because they bought, you know, 100 kilos of cucumbers in bulk, they're now selling them at a markup to their customers. And the worst bit is, they're controlling the price uniformly across their locations. So that means that if consumers are shopping at the supermarkets, they have to take the price they're getting. There's no haggling like at the markets. There's no, what if I buy two kilos? Can you knock a little bit off the price? None of that. The price is the price. Whatever it's advertised in the supermarket, that's what you're paying for it. And 
you can guarantee that the farmer is not getting what you're paying for it at the supermarket. In fact, in some cases, farmers have had to discard produce because they haven't been able to get a price that will cover their costs. And, and rightly so, why should they sell it? You know, I mean, if it was me, I'd probably want to give it away to some kind of charity. You know, maybe um, what's the, the food, there's a food gathering group here in Canberra and they go around and collect um, unwanted restaurant food, like food before it goes bad. They'll, it's not going to sell, they'll go and collect it. And they then feed that to homeless people and people that don't um, have the money to buy food. So I would be probably passing it that way. But I mean, at the end of the day, the farmers are just trying to earn a living. And the supermarkets just don't care. They're only out to make a buck. Um, they're out to make a buck off you. They're out to make a buck off the farmers by paying them less than what they should be. And then we've got the government coming in over the top and saying, oh, no, well, you can't, um, you know, like not, and I'm not talking about Australian government, I'm talking about governments worldwide, coming in and going, oh, well, climate change, we're going to have to tax you extra for that. Even though we all know, anybody that's involved in farming knows that, climate change is not what it's made out to be um and certainly from a pollution perspective you know farming is not the great polluter that people think it is you know go jump on a plane and fly somewhere on a plane tell me that's not polluting um anyway so the supermarkets maximized its profits at the expense of the farmers well-being and their sustainability into the food local food system so financially they're cutting them off at the knees I think it's really important for us, anybody coming into a homesteading or small farm kind of system needs to be aware that that's what's going on. And I don't think it's publicised enough. I really don't think that people talk about it enough. But I think because of that, we really need to promote and explore alternative channels for selling produce. So within our communities, whether it be at farmer markets or whether it's direct to consumer sales like I do with my eggs, or if it's a, a you know, roadside stall at your gate, we really need to encourage people to buy. Sorry, just had a little glitch there in the uh, recording. Uh, back to normal programming now. So selling eggs direct to customers like what I do, um, we need to make sure that when we do this, that we're getting a fair compensation for our efforts. So we're not undercutting other farmers, but we also need to make sure that we're making um, the food system true to, to dollar value. So if eggs cost, and at the moment I'm probably guilty of it, my eggs are $7.50 a carton. And realistically for pasteurized, non-hormone, non-medicated you know, chicken eggs, um, I probably could be getting closer to $10 a carton, but I have my set customers that I you know, get that money off. If I was selling at the farmer's markets and I had to pay for a table or something like that, then it would likely be that I would be up near that $10 a carton mark. Now, at the moment, currently worldwide, farmers are in dispute with their governments because they feel like they've got that lack of support for agriculture. And I keep saying it, and I'll say it again, I'll say it till I'm blue in the face. Um, farmers are an essential service. Without farmers, we don't eat. Um, most of our clothing products are cotton and linen products, um, non-polyester non, um, or man-made products come from farmers. Uh, wool comes from farmers. And most importantly to me, alcohol comes from farmers because if they're not growing the crops to make these goods, then the goods just won't get made. It doesn't matter that there's a, a middleman and a producer that turns the wool into yarn and then knits it into a jumper. 
if the farmers aren't producing the wool, then there's no product to buy for that middleman. So they farmers are an essential service. And I keep saying it because I, I you know, eventually people will believe me. It's my theory on that one. Um, but we really do need to support farmers and not just small farmers like us, like homesteaders who are just selling a little bit of extra produce, but we need to support the bigger farmers too. And, and there's lots of reasons that we need to support them. The one that I really look at is if we're paying them the right amount of money for what they're doing, then they're going to do what they do better because they don't have to stress about where every dollar's coming from. And if we do that, then we are eventually going to move more away from that factory farming model that we kind of moved into in the 60s and 70s. We're going to move further away from that and go more to a um, regenerative agricultural model. But farmers can't do that unless they're getting paid adequately for their services. So the more we support them, the more they'll move to that regenerative agriculture model, the more they move to the to the regenerative agriculture model, the more chance we have of having really high quality, good quality you know, nutrient dense food being produced that not only is not impacting the pollution levels in the environment, but is also increasing um, the the um, increasing the climate that that farm is on, so that it's running more efficiently rather than less efficiently. I can't think of a better way to word that, but I'm sure you know what I mean. So, uh, what kinds of things impact on our uh, food security and I think as homesteaders and farmers we need to think about getting produce as close to possible year-round that being said there are seasonal, flu seasonal fluctuations that we have to take into account and yeah there's always unexpected setbacks which is what I've been going through for the last month and or two weeks and then over the last over this weekend we've had even more issues so um yeah, over the last month, just about all of our chickens, we've, we've the vast majority of our chickens are Isa Browns, and they all went their annual molt, including the rooster. He looks terrible. He's no, no tail feathers left at all. But they're on the tail end of their molt. We've upped their protein. We've given them cans of tuna and things like that to try and give them a real boost. So hopefully that's going to rejuvenate their systems. And when they start laying again, because at the moment we're getting 10 eggs a day down from 30 eggs a day, um, when they start laying again, the hope is that they will be back into full swing in no time and it won't impact them physically at all because they'll be, they'll be really rejuvenated from their malt. Then over the last weekend, <laughs> my primary milking goat, Hazel, fell ill and I, I've actually struggled to try and work out what is wrong. But I think... We ran out of hay, dry hay, and we were feeding her a little bit more grain than what we would normally. And given that she is six years old, her system doesn't work quite as well as the other younger ones. And I think she developed uh, a thing called acidosis. I think it's called acidosis. It's basically a fermentation in her stomach where she was having too much grain and pellets and not enough dry hay kind of foragey stuff. And it's caused her to basically have like a version of colic where she has diarrhea, she's not off of food, she was off of water, off of milk, she, so her milk production was right down. Um, unfortunately, it's a hard one to fix. And I have done everything I can. The poor girl had to get bicarb sodied. And for those that haven't done that before, bicarb soda is a, um, it reduces the, the fizz, the bloat, the, the gastro issues in, um, in goats. 
Now, you normally leave a little tray of bicarb soda and they can actively seek it out themselves when they need it. But the interesting bit in learning more and more about goats is that goats actually make their own bicarb, like a version of bicarb, when they chew their cud. So when they eat roughage and they regurgitate it back up into their mouth and chew on it, they make a version of bicarb which settles the acid in their stomach and allows them to have normal solid poos. Uh, when they don't, when they're not doing that, when they're not chewing their cud constantly and and too much grain can be a problem for it. Um, getting into chicken feed, which Hazel is a shocker for, but that not that that happened this week. Um, that can be a problem for it as well. So she, I think that's what the problem is. So I have put bicarb soda water down her throat. I had to syringe it in because she won't take it. Then because she's had the diarrhea, I've had to put electrolytes into her, which she was none too happy about. Although she was slightly happier with the... Um, Gatorade that I gave her, <laughs> mixed up powder Gatorade, over the homemade version that I make, which has bicarb, salt, and molasses in it uh, with warm water. She really doesn't like that one. <laughs> anyway, she's drinking again at the moment. She's still not eating, and she's definitely not out of the woods, and it can absolutely kill a goat. So, fingers crossed for me, folks. I'm hoping that I've managed to get her out the other side of that, where the, the, um, the fermentation in her stomach has settled certainly her rumen has stopped contracting the way that it was so i'm hoping she's kind of cleared the other side but that now means and and it sounds harsh to say all that you know because i love my goats and i you know think about them from the perspective of family pets and i really want to keep her going but from a um, more farmer and more uh, business side of the the point of view uh, I now have one goat not milking because I can't possibly milk her when she's this sick. And that's why I say farmers, when people say farmers don't treat their animals well, we have to treat our animals well because if we don't treat them well, <laughs> we lose produce. Uh, so now I'm down to only Lucy milking um, and uh, she was a bit off of milk anyway. She's fine. She doesn't, She she's not having the same issue as Hazel is. But Lucy only gives me half a litre a day at the moment because the kids are still on her so it might be that I have to take the kids off her they're old enough now to come off but realistically from our household's view we need a litre a day of milk um, because I, I try and make some cheese up at the end of the fortnight so I'm now relying on one goat and I've got stuff all eggs and food security is looking pretty fucking slim for us right at this point in time uh, from the perspective of our nutrient dense uh, protein supplies that we have here on the farm so what do we need to think about when we're thinking about food security from a homestead or far a small farming perspective and you know it's not just what's going on at the supermarket I'm talking about what we're doing on the farm so the first one is timing your produce now this applies whether we're talking about livestock or whether we're talking about pl um, garden planting um, but coinciding uh, birth and raising young animals or uh, produce being ready for harvest and taking into account the seasonal factors. So obviously with gardens, we're going to aim for a spring harvest in most things or spring, you get the plants really rocky and rolling in spring. Now, depending on where you live, if you live in an area where there's snow up until you're midway through your spring, then you either need a greenhouse or a hothouse or some kind of uh, building that you can start your plants in before you take them outside. Um, in regards to livestock, what we want to think about is when do we want kids arriving? When do we want baby chicks arriving? When do we want calves arriving? 
And for most of us, that's going to be going into spring when the weather is starting to warm up and we're not going to have problems with calves being born in the snow and the freezing cold, which I'm sure you've all seen pictures of, of calves born out in the freezing cold and it's really hard to get their temperature back up again. Um, but also too, from a pasture perspective, we want, because goats and, and, you know, because we want our cows to be grass fed and we want, you know, pigs to be able to forage and, and sheep to be able to forage off, off grasses, then that spring pasture growth is going to be ideal time for kids to be arriving or calves or, you know, when I say kids, I mean all of them. Um, so planning your breeding cycles around that and making sure that you are breeding so that the kids are arriving when it's the best time for you not just for you for you know you as far as your schedule goes with kids and work and all that kind of stuff but when it's best for the weather best for the pasture best for daylight hours it might be we we have very minimal daylight hours here in winter so we don't do a lot outside in winter um and also too you want to play into that the gestation periods of animals so timing things so that you have uh, babies arriving not all at once but staggered so that you're not kind of inundated with everything so for us our new chicken our uh, day-old chickens that we get we try and stagger our day-old chickens who are egg production with our day-old chickens who are meat production and the reason that we try and stagger that is because they share the same brooder house but the meat birds grow very very quick so within three to four weeks they're out on the pasture but our egg birds tend to not grow so quick so they're definitely not out of the brooder house until they're six weeks old so it's a matter of timing it so that you know that the egg birds are going to be out on pasture growing because they're not going to lay eggs until they're 18 weeks old roughly so we want them between that six and 18 week mark we want them out on pasture starting to really develop and then our meat birds coming in after that because they're going to come out on the pasture and they're going to be ready for processing within a couple of weeks so it is a kind of a bit of a, um, a timing balance with that to see where you're going to get them going. And you need to get a really good rhythm going through the year. Now, the reason that we do that is because we want our meat to arrive at certain times. So we don't want to be processing meat in the middle of summer when it's stinking hot and there's flies everywhere. For anybody that's been to Australia, you know, in the middle of summer, there's, there's literally flies everywhere. So it's really important if you're processing outside that you think about those kind of things as well. But also we want eggs... Uh, to we want our egg supply to be continuous so at the moment we've just had the malt and this is really poor form on my part we should have had egg birds sitting at about the 20 week mark right as we went into this malt and it didn't happen because I wasn't organized enough so what I need to do now is stagger the next lot of egg birds that I'm about to organize for in the next couple of weeks the next lot of egg birds that I'm going to get I need to stagger it and make a mental note and set an alarm that I need to order the next lot of egg birds when I think those egg birds are going to be about the one year mark and starting to go into their first molt. And that means that we'll have that overlap of egg layers where there's some birds not going into a molt, some birds going into a molt, I still will have a steady supply of eggs. And that's the same for chicken meat, um, for goat meat and cows and sheep and pigs. It's a little bit different, uh, but certainly for, um, I know a couple of people who raise um, pasture-raised pigs, but they feed them goat's milk or cow's milk as a fattener. Um, those kinds of things, you obviously want to have those uh, pigs growing 
at a time when you're at your peak milking season so that you have all that extra surplus of milk that you can feed them to get them really growing. So again, you just have to stagger that. So you make sure that the piglets are arriving around the same time, but not exactly the same time as the goats. So maybe three, have them arrive so that they're going to be two or three weeks in. They're going to be looking for their milk supply when you, sorry, let me say that again. You're going to have them at a point where they're getting ready to drink milk when you are heading into your glut. So around that three or four week mark after kidding. Oh, that was a mouthful. All right. The next one is preservation during times of feast. So obviously when we have a glut of things, really we need to, as far as food security goes, we need to think about what can we do with the excess produce. So um, meat, milk, eggs are my main things that I have here. And the, the types of preservations that I look at are freezing, canning. We're just starting to look at drying. Um, OJ's just indicated that he would like to learn how to make salami. And also it's probably not a bad idea for us to get into drying a bit of beef jerky. Um, fermenting um, our vegetable products. Um, obviously you don't want to be having fermented meat. I know people in Iceland eat fermented fish, but I don't think I could bring myself to it. Uh, but smoked meats and salamis are a good one. Um, canning we've already talked about jerky and lime glassing eggs which i have a video on my um, social media pages so go to mojo homestead if you haven't already seen it i have a video of me lime glassing 50 eggs and we're just about at a point i think where i'm about to pull one out and try it so keep an eye out for that uh, we'll see how fresh it looks compared to our other eggs um so uh investing in equipment so things like chest freezers cool rooms canning supplies dehydrators if you're going to dehydrate particularly vegetables and things like that you could herbs you could dehydrate so that when you've got that glut you can have the security of having that food through the leaner periods uh, vacuum sealers i think meat stored in vacuum sealers in the freezer lasts so much longer um it just yeah it holds its shape better but vegetables too i've i've um vacuum sealed zucchinis and things like that and they cope really well in fact i think i used to vacuum seal avocados to stop them going brown in the in the air um so that's another one that works really well um and developing recipes and techniques so when we were talking about um the sausage uh, about salamis you know sausage meat hams that have been smoked but also with my milk um, supplies um, cheeses which is what I've started getting into and what I want to get to the point of doing is making hard cheeses that are going to last or not even be ready to consume for six months after the end of milking season so they're really good ones for keeping that food security going where you know you've produced enough and you can store it in a cool room or in a cellar and come six months time when you haven't had a goat in milk for six months you've still got fresh goat's milk cheese uh, and the next one is learning to eat seasonally and I think this is something that we don't do and we don't do it because produce is so readily available at the supermarket that you just think oh well it's the middle of winter and I feel like an avocado I'm going to go and get one and we don't necessarily think about where that avocado is how far it's had to travel to get to us but I think it's a really good idea to get to a point where you're eating seasonally and Therefore, you know, through those leaner winter months, you are dipping into your um, food supplies that you've stocked up over summer and spring. Um, so adapting livestock management in, reliant, in line with um, you know, seasonal eating. Livestock isn't such a big issue because livestock, you know, at the end of the day, you could probably butcher a cow whenever you liked. 
take into account that if it's the middle of a freezing winter, you're probably not going to want to do it then. You might want to do it at the end of summer, planning for it to be ready, you know, heading into those winter months. Uh, but certainly um, adjusting grazing patterns and things like that is something that you need to consider during those winter months. Um, educating customers and community. So I've spoken to all my customers at the moment about the fact that my chickens are going through a molt and they are aware that there is very little we can do about it. Unfortunately, when chickens go into that molting season, um, you just have to let them do that. They're doing it to, for their own well-being. So we certainly allow them to do that. We just feed them up as best we can and support them as best we can. So we know that they're going to come out the other side of the molt and produce beautiful eggs again for us. But let your customers know if you've got people that are regularly buying produce off you and you um, know that you know in a couple of weeks time you're not going to have that produce it's really important to give them the heads up so that they don't have any expectations about the continuing supply of food coming from you um and that goes without saying for dairy as well if you've got that winter lull like we have where we don't milk over winter because our girls are recuperating resting and pregnant with the next babies for the next year um, so we let them rest um, and speaking of that Hazel if Hazel's been sick if she comes good I may rest her next year and not get her into kid um, to give her a bit of a chance to really recuperate from this because she has been quite unwell the last couple of days um, one of the other things that I thought about which is not something that I do and, and it may be not even on your radar yet but if you are um, in selling your food to any local restaurants or chefs or anything like that it probably wouldn't be a bad idea on that food security side of things. Um, if you have the opportunity, consider collaborating with them, with the restaurants, to promote seasonal menus. And obviously really targeting that whole, this is a seasonal thing, this is available more predominantly during these months than it would be during other months of the year. Um, and the last one that I want to talk about was understanding that some foods are more nutritionally dense than others and I say that from the point of view of a livestock raiser and like you most of you would know I'm no gardener um, I love to have garden stuff coming in um, unfortunately at the moment the garden literally I don't have I think I've got potatoes in and that's it um, so they're the last ones in there because uh, I just did not get much done at all this summer uh, but um, letting people know that yeah the the meat milk and egg quality that you're getting your grass-fed meat milk and egg um, is definitely higher in nutritional content and flavor now if you're looking at food security from the perspective of how do i make sure that my family has sufficient food even if you are somebody who is uh, vegan or vegetarian i would strongly encourage you to look at the nutrient density of animal products because it is certainly for space for time, for effort, they're more nutrition, nutritionally dense than any plant you're going to grow. And I say that not as a dietitian or anything like that, but just from the perspective of what I've learned in order to heal my own stomach where I've had issues with my stomach. Um, so the human body requires about 40 different micro, micronutrients uh, in order to have normal metabolic function. And that getting in that kind of density we need to get it in if if there is food security issues we need to get in in the smallest and most efficient way that we can and the the best way to do that is through animal products animal fats um and animal meat and organ meat which i struggle to consume but organ meat is so nutritionally dense 
And one of the things you have to look at is not just the nutritional levels of that particular food, but also the bioavailability, which I didn't understand what that was, but that refers to the portion of the nutrient that is absorbed into the digestive tract and released into the bloodstream for the body's use. Now, um, the amount of bioavailable nutrients in, in most foods uh, that's available, sorry, is always lower than the amount of nutrients the food contains. So for example, I've got an example here, um, uh, calcium. The bioavailability of calcium from spinach is only 5%. Of the 115 milligrams of calcium being present in a serve of spinach, only six milligrams is absorbed. That means you'd have to consume 16 cups of spinach to get the same amount of bioavailable calcium as what you actually get out of one glass of milk. And that's why I say animal products are so much more nutrient dense because you don't have to eat as much. You don't have to consume as much, which means if you don't have to consume as much, you don't have to buy as much or grow as much in order to get the same level of micronutrients. So, uh, and then obviously I did talk about earlier, you know, the more we encourage farmers to uh, grow uh, grass-fed stock for us, then there's more chance they're going to move to that regenerative agriculture model. And one of the little um, notes that I found about conventional grain-fed beef, conventional grain-fed beef is highly nutritious, and it, it it you know it's still beef. And if that's all you can get, then you go for it. You're still going to have a really nutritious meal. But grass-fed beef contains more. I can never say it. Carotidin, carotenoids, carotenoids, carotenoids vitamin E and other antioxidants than what grain-fed does. So there is a difference between grass-fed and grain-fed. Um, some people also, and I'm, I have no problem eating animal fats, but some people also say uh, because grass-fed beef contains lower fats or saturated fats, I should say, which I think some people consider to be the bad fats, um, then grass-fed's obviously the preferred option for people that, that don't want to consume those extra layers of fat. So from a food security perspective... I would like, I wish every small farm was growing their own beef, their own milking goats and their own chickens for eggs and for meat, uh, because that would give you goat meat, chicken meat, beef. It would give you eggs, milk, cheese, cream, butter, if you chose to make all those things, and then anything that you can grow in the garden as well. And as most of you know, I was doing carnivore for a while, but I have gone back to doing ketivore. So I'm back to eating berries and back to eating some vegetables like carrots and cucumbers and zucchinis, things that don't bother my stomach. Uh, so if you can do all that, then you don't need to worry about the fact that the supermarkets aren't doing the right thing by the farmers because you're doing the right thing by yourself. Anyway, that sounds very preachy, but you know what I mean, guys. Uh, so hit me up, send me a DM and tell me what you are growing that you are at a point where you're never going to have to buy it from the supermarket again. For us, it's definitely chicken eggs. Uh, like I say, we've lime glassed some eggs. So we actually have a supply, a personal supply of eggs. I can't sell the lime glassed eggs to anybody. So I only sell my fresh eggs to my customers. Hence why there's a bit of a a lull at the moment uh, but for from our perspective we can consume the the lime glass eggs uh here so we don't have to dip into the, our customers eggs which is a good thing uh, but 
hit me up on DM and tell me what it is that you grow that you are never going to buy at the supermarket ever again. And it might be, you might have a really good apple tree, you might have a lovely raspberry bush like we do, uh, where you know you're never going to have to go to the shops for raspberries ever again. Uh, but I would love to hear. Anyway, that's it for this week. Now, I have promised you a couple of weeks in a row that we are going to have an international guest on. And I am still trying to organize that, but hopefully it won't be too far into the future. Um, it won't be next episode, but hopefully it's going to be episode number 55. I'm hoping will be our international guest. Uh, so keep your eyes peeled for that one. Anyway, in the meantime, have a fantastic week and I will talk to you all next week. Bye for now. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you've enjoyed our time together. If you did, I'd be so grateful if you left me a review. I would also absolutely love it if you tagged me in your next post on your favourite socials at either Not The Farmer's Wife or Mojo Homestead. And don't forget to get your free guide to backyard chicken keeping at www.mojohomestead.net backslash seven must knows. And remember, grow the life you want to live. See ya.